iron living. This shark swallow you whole. I value my neck a lot more than 3,000 bucks, Chief. Find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for ten. Ten thousand dollars for me by myself. For that you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. You yell shark, we've got a panel on our hands on the 4th of July. Mr. Vaughn, Mr. Vaughn, I pulled a tooth the size of a shot glass out of the rectal of the boat out there, and it was the tooth of a great white. A what? You're gonna need a bigger boat. Love to prove that, wouldn't you? Get your name into the National Geographic. Now, I'm not saying that this is not the shark. It probably is, Martin. It probably is. It's a man-eater. It's extremely rare for these waters. But the fact is that the bite radius on this animal is different than the wounds on the victim. Welcome back to another episode of the Jaws Obsession, where we are here to share with you, prove to you, convince you, or remind you that Jaws is the greatest movie of all time. Well, what a break. We had a little bit of a break there uh, over this last few weeks, but we are back. We are back with another episode, episode 59, Bill Butler Inspiration. The cinematic world is mourning the loss of Bill Butler, the director of photography, cinematographer on the movie Jaws and many other features. And we're going to get into how did Bill Butler inspire not only the production of Jaws, but uh, the work of Steven Spielberg on Jaws. But also, can we take some lessons how Mr. Butler handled the the chaotic production of Jaws, and can we apply those to our lives uh, going forward, uh, where his his work actually uh, expands beyond just um, what we see on the silver screen. He's actually an example and an inspiring example to myself. And uh, if we look into this a little bit more, uh, maybe he can inspire you as well. And that's what we're going to do today on episode 59 of the Jaws Obsession. I realize how busy your life is. I realize how much content is out there for you to come back and spend time listening to what we're doing here with the Jaws Obsession. I appreciate that so much. You listening inspires me to keep going forward with what we're trying to do here. I want to thank you. I want to thank you from my heart because I realized over the last few weeks how important this process was, not just this broadcast of the Jaws Obsession, but being able to connect with you out there, uh, without you, the listener, and that energy, I we, we would not be able to be as far as we have gotten with uh, this project, with uh, the Book of Quint or the Jaws Obsession. And that is what is special about the movie Jaws. It's why it's the greatest movie of all time, because it it binds us all together in in many ways. I felt very strongly over the last few weeks 
Um, I, I usually don't get into the personal side or uh, things that are going on outside of uh, Jaws and the Book of Quint. But uh, during this time, it just seems that um, everybody, it's, this is not just me. This might you, you could have experienced this yourself, that when you're trying to work on something or bring something that you truly, uh, that, that you have a passion about into the world, a lot of uh, forces come at you. A lot of things come at you in many ways to distract or to try to stop your momentum. And um, those are the things that you have to deal with. And that's what I think that Jaws ultimately was. Here was this production that was super chaotic and everything was thrown at these people that came together to make this movie. A lot of people, we all know the stories. Uh, there has been There have been many books and documentaries about the uh, chaotic making of Jaws. Director Spielberg lost sleep. He lost sleep over the production, and uh, it, was a, it was a source of stress and chaos for so many people, um, for so many people that had a hand in it, especially with the, with the sequels. If you looked at the sequels, it has been a source of a chaotic struggle in many ways in all these different sequels. And I'm not going to say that the Book of Quint, the process has not been uh, smooth. There has, I've noticed that there's things that come out that, uh, that I have to deal with at the same time that's not, has nothing to do with Jaws or the Book of Quint. But it's just interesting how that comes out now, uh, but that, 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 that affects you now when uh, two or three years ago, there, that never would have happened, right? So it just seems that the universe throws things at you and then you have to deal with them. We have a lot of support. There's been so much support going on. We have a great agent with the William Pettit Agency out of Atlanta, Georgia. As far as my career working on power lines, um, or tending to the family, you know, kids have practices, you have tax season, you have all sorts of stuff going on. So there's certain things where I've been committing full time to the writing uh, and the process of the uh, developing the book into screenplay format. So Jaws Obsession had to take the back seat. When I get reviews or I will see uh, people that are helping me out, even over in England, that inspires me to say, no, we have to, now let's go you know, like to compartmentalize my energy into saying, okay, let's go over and Let's do another episode of the Jaws Obsession now. So Hayden is a gentleman over in England, and he runs Jaws, uh, Jaws Obsession UK Twitter feed. If you go on to Twitter, he has a Jaws Obsession UK. So he's managing the uh, affairs of the Jaws Obsession over in England to the point where he's answering uh, he's, he's kind of working angles over there to make uh, the Book of Quint more well-known, as well as the Jaws Obsession more well-known because our second biggest country other than after the United States is the UK. That That is where a, a big chunk of downloads comes from for this, this show. So Hayden over there let me know. he I received a message from him at four in the morning because he is six hours advanced on me. I'm on the East Coast of the United States, and I received a message that uh, Bill Butler passed away. And that is what set this, it, it, it couldn't have, it, it's interesting how things happen. And when you hear news that it affects you in many ways. So um, that was on April 6th. And I always saw that there's just one little piece. Uh, there's one specific piece of information that I haven't heard people talk about, about Mr. Butler that I'm going to get to later on in this episode. That is what leads me to title this episode, Bill Butler Inspiration. We're going to get into that later on, but that's where I was, was I was sitting there and when, when things are overloaded, when you seem overloaded, one of the things with this broadcast of the Jaws Obsession, it's going to be around forever. Um, we are all not going to be on this planet forever, uh, but the things that we do in this, life, in this lifetime, 
will stay around for those of our extended family generations from now. Um, who knows? My great grandkids will be listening to this episode. Above my monitor, one of my monitors here where I, um, I do my writing and where I do the editing for this broadcast, I have a framed picture of Ernest Hemingway. And one of the quotes, that's a quote that's on there from one of his books, For Whom the Bell Tolls. The quote reads, Today is only one day in all the days that will ever be. But what will happen in all the other days that ever come can depend on what you do today. I find that fascinating, that it depends. You could be working on a boat in a shipyard, like our good friend Noel Constantino is over in Boston. You could be working on a power lines, like one of our listeners, Dale, does over in the UK, or I do here in the United States. But everything that you do, you have, you have, we have interactions with people a hundred times a day. And the, the, these things that we do have an effect and they might not have an effect today. They might not have an effect tomorrow. It could be 10, 15, 25, 30 years, 50 years later that that will have an effect on someone that reads or watches or hears what you've done. And that's where I have been operating in this in this cycle is just kind of seeing where things are going. If I, I wish I could tell everyone what uh, just the entire saga of not just the writing of the book of Quint, but the, uh, th this process, this entire process is, it's quite the story. If you knew exactly what's going on, uh, I just feel that, and this is how I see it is that when, when, when life throws you some hurdles or when you have some roadblocks set up, this might be a message to my grandchildren. Who knows? Maybe if you're out there listening to my voice right now, if you have some hurdles and your roadblocks, one thing I've always done is I always look at, are you better off now than you were a year ago? That's a question that I ask myself in my career or in where I was, like if I'm doing writing or if I'm doing whatever I'm doing, if the, if the stress starts to build or if the pressure starts to mount, you just sit there and ask yourself, are you better off now than you were a year ago? If the answer is yes, then you are on the right track. Build on that and just say, okay, keep moving forward. Put another step forward. If the answer is no, then you have to ask yourself, what steps do you take now? So the answer to that question will be yes next year. Okay, let's let's look in the, I'm going to look in this right now. What's the date? The date is now April 14th. So April 14th. So one year ago today, I did in my logbook here, I spent two hours on the Book of Quint logo with the Orca font. And then I wrote for six hours. I was I was writing uh, chapter 21 to the Book of Quint. So that was one year ago today. Can you believe that? I was writing chapters 21 and I was working on the Book of Quint logo that you see on the cover of the book. That was exactly one year ago. So if I find myself, if I, if I spend too much time looking at the minutia and sitting inside the details, I can get overwhelmed. Sometimes you have to sit back and you have to fly up in the sky and take a bird's eye view and you have to look over the entire field of what you're trying to do and you can actually see that you're making great strides. No matter where you are in your life, if you can remember that, are you better off now than you were a year ago? and see if you can answer that yes, or what steps would the, would you need to take to answer yes to that question a year from now. You can accomplish great things. We can accomplish great things doing that. And you're never by yourself. There's always someone out there to ask for help. There's always a way 
to accomplish your goals in a well thought out and, and instructed manner because nothing that we're doing now hasn't been done before. So you just go find the people that have, have the experience and you just ask questions and you talk to people. And that's, that's just how I've always lived my life. Now, I wanted to, before we get to uh, Mr. Butler, I wanted to get to one more thing because we're getting new listeners to the show all the time. There's people discovering the book of Quint that were able to get a hand, their hands on a copy. Another review came in, and I wanted to share that with everyone because I don't like to sit on these reviews. I want to share these reviews because I want you to know how important, how important these reviews are to myself as well as to you out there listening so you can see that everyone, that, uh, that we all did this together. I don't feel that I did this on my own. I feel that there was uh, a lot of support and energy behind this project. And the writing, as you saw a year ago, I was only on chapters 21. I mean, this is a 54-chapter book that was before the prologue and epilogue were written. Uh, so, I mean, we're talking, look at the, look at the, the energy that went into this project. I, I still can't sit back and, and I'm, I'm thankful that we are actually not only at a part with a finished novel, but we actually have an agent representing us. How fantastic is that? So let's get this. I want to read this review right here and show you exactly the impact that a prequel to Jaws can have on fans that are out there. We've, we've spent a number of episodes reading from so many great Jaws fans out there that have written in telling us their great experiences within the pages of the Book of Quint. So let's get to this one. This is one from uh, Brendan. Brendan writes in, uh, Ryan, greetings from Boston. I'm a fellow U.S. Coast Guard veteran and Jaws fanatic who's been obsessed with the movie since my parents questionably gave me the VHS for my fifth birthday. I found your podcast about two months ago, plowed through all the old episodes, and ordered your book. I was immediately stunned by the design, feel, maps, and illustrations as soon as it arrived. But I have to confess that a large part of me did not want to like it. Even though you're, you'd already proven your Jaws street cred on the podcast, I couldn't shake my, quote, who does this guy think he is feeling? Or the concern that the book couldn't live up to the hype. It took you about two pages to completely prove me wrong. This book is absolutely stunning from beginning to end and honors the film's legacy on every page. You managed to pull every quint scene or line of dialogue from Jaws and turn them into a gripping backstory that fits perfectly into the canon. I could hear Robert Shaw's voice and John Williams' score leaping off every page, and now I can't watch the movie without seeing and feeling your characters pervading it. My dad passed down his passion and love for Jaws on the same level as his love for the Red Sox or Bruins. And it felt great to be able to give your book to him and partially repay the favor. We'll be raising and crushing Narragansett cans in your honor as we discuss the Book of Quint together for years. I can't wait to read the screenplay and see your story come to life on the big screen in the near future. I wish you the best of luck with the new agency. Bravo Zulu. Farewell and adieu. Brendan. Wow, what a review. That's... that's I read that, and um, first of all, that's that hit me like a ton of bricks. The that review, it was that he sent that 
on April 6th. So you have to realize I found out about the uh, passing of Bill Butler. Then I get this review that comes in. And these uh, things start clicking off, aside from also what's been going on the outside of all the Jaws stuff. You know, real life situations, uh, things get in the way, things come up. So, uh, so what happened is I never knew there was going to be this type of inspiration coming my way where the book was inspiring someone like Brendan out there, not only find the passion into the book, but to compare it to the passion and love for Jaws that his father passed down to him as the, just as the Red Sox or the Bruins to become closer to his father, uh, to bond in that way. And then to write me an email and tell me about it at that time, it's indescribable. I really can't, um, I can't really verbalize how special that moment was. This review right here is everything that I knew was out there before the writing of the book. And I knew that there was something there that could generate this type of passion. Great to see this happen. I missed writing for about 10 days. I couldn't write. My mind wasn't there. My mind was completely, all my energy had to be focused into other areas um, uh, and then from, from work and life. So I came back and now it's just right back into writing for the screenplay and all that, uh, punching through scenes for the screenplay. It, there are so many examples of inspiration in Jaws that this is just another format. If this is just another form of that inspiration, uh, just paying it forward. We're extending that forward from Brendan out in Boston, who is a fellow Coast Guard veteran. Semper Paratus, Brendan, that he's realizing that it's extending his enjoyment of Jaws and he's paying that forward by bringing that to his father. It's a great story. It really is. And I was just very, I was very impressed. So I'm going to write him back. I haven't written him back yet because I wanted to record this, but I'm going to write Brendan back, tell him how thankful I am for that review. I thought that was very honest of him. He says, I had to confess that a large part of me did not want to like it. And I know there are Jaws fans out there that are holding out and they still have that feeling that they, they might not want to let themselves be open because it's quite a step. I mean, we all love this movie, so it's quite a step to allow yourself to realize there's a possibility of a bigger story out there. If you are like that and you don't want to read the, read the novel, I understand and that's okay. That's okay with that's okay with myself. That's okay for Jaws. Jaws is a great movie on its own. I like that Brendan was able to say, "Here's was my mindset," and you went in, and that's kind of what the novel was designed for. Because I was the same way myself. I didn't want to write this at first because I knew that the amount of work that it would take to get it to where it needs to be. And I want everyone to know, and I've received emails, I receive emails every week, messages, uh, whether it's through Instagram, if you go to uh, jawsob.com, Instagram, at the at book of Quint over at Instagram.com, that I, I am getting messages from folks that want to read the book. And I just asking for patience is that we what we're what we're doing is we're actively uh, in talks with different publishing houses. And when we have a publishing date, we're going to let that be known. That's where we are at right now on the book side of things. Let's talk about episode 59, Bill Butler Inspiration. The American Society of Cinematographers mourns loss 
of society's most senior member, Wilmer C. Butler. We're going to start with an article from The Hollywood Reporter. Bill Butler, cinematographer on Jaws, dies at 101. This is an article by Rhett Bartlett from April 6, 2023. Bill Butler, the self-taught Oscar-nominated cinematographer whose work on the landmark 1975 horror film Jaws, unleashed a wave of anxiety for beachgoers that last to this day, has died. He would have turned 102 on Friday, so only days before his 102nd birthday, Bill Butler passed away at 101 years old. Butler died Wednesday evening in Los Angeles, according to American Society of Cinematographers. He is survived by five daughters and his wife, Iris. Uh, Wilmer Butler was born on April 7, 1921, in Cripple Creek, Colorado, and raised in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. He said his earliest film memory was watching The Jazz Singer, 1927, when he was six years old. I'm going to stop right there. If you want, if you go to our Telegram channel, you're going, I'm going to post various pictures of Bill Butler on the set of Jaws. Uh, you'll see him standing there with Steven Spielberg. So there'll be some photos posted over there, as well as these articles that I'm going to be referencing. The article also mentions years after graduating with a degree in engineering from the University of Iowa, Butler was working as a cameraman doing live shows and commercials for WGN-TV in the early 1960s when he met Friedkin. William Friedkin, then a floor manager at the Chicago station. Butler never attended film school, learning his craft by going to the movies and by referring to the ASC manual, the American Society of Cinematographers manual, whenever he couldn't figure anything out. Let's stop right there. So what we have is he became the senior member of the American Society of Cinematographers. No film school. He had a degree in engineering from the University of Iowa. Let's all lock in on that. Let's all lock in on that is that here you have someone who had an entirely different career trajectory and he decided to go into cinematography. He was trained as an engineer because that's going to come into play later on. Very interesting. So let's let's keep that in mind. He was a, he was a, had an engineering degree and he never attended film school. Okay, now this is interesting. Bill Butler was an accredited second unit photographer on Coppola's The Godfather. 1972, shooting the West Coast scenes as well as scenes of Michael Corleone, Al Pacino, and the baker, Gabriel Torre, standing guard outside the hospital where Vito, Marlon Brando, is recovering from an assassination attempt. Now, if anyone's listened to the Jaws Obsession, I I always reference The Godfather. It's one of my favorite movies. But that sequence, the scene with the stairwell where Michael Corleone has to move his father because he thinks the hitmen are coming, and it ends up being the baker, and they have to go outside, and he puts the baker's collar up. He says, put your hands in your pocket, act like you have a gun, and then the real hitmen show up. It's It's a great sequence filled with a lot of tension, but... Wow, look at that. Who was the second unit photographer on that? That was Bill Butler. He was coming up through the ranks, but he had his hand on some very interesting, as a second unit, he had his hand in one of the make, in the making of one of the greatest movies of all time, right? Uh, the Godfather. And so it would only be fitting that this man would go to become the director of photography for the greatest movie of all time, Jaws. Very interesting. I learned that I did not know he was he 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 had uh, his hand in shooting some of that, and 
uh, shooting the West Coast scenes. So what were the West Coast scenes of The Godfather in 1972? Well, that would be when uh, they go to the Hollywood producer's house, the whole horse head part. Uh, the, the silhouetting, the lighting that's used with uh, Robert Duvall, Tom Hagen, and um, John Marley, who plays Jack Waltz. So if you look at those sequences, a very knowledgeable craftsman has his hand in that. And from what I'm reading here, he was the second unit photographer. He's an uncredited, uncredited second, unit for, second unit photographer. Very interesting. What an amazing accomplishment this man had as he's moving through his career. So Butler won Emmy Awards in 1977 and 84. In 2003, the American Society of Cinematographers presented him with a Lifetime Achievement Award. During his five-decade career, Butler also shot Francis Ford Coppola's The Rain People, 1969, and The Conversation, 1974, Peter Hyams' Capricorn One, 1977, uh, Randall Kleiser's hit musical Grease, so he was the director of photography on Greece. And then the three Rocky sequels, Rocky II, Rocky III, and Rocky IV, all written and directed and starring Sylvester Stallone. Butler also lends the first film William Friedkin ever directed, as well as Jack Nicholson's 1971 helming debut, Drive. Other movies are the skating drama Ice Castles, 1978, and the 1980 mu musical Can't Stop the Music, and then Ivan Reitman's comedy, Stripes in 1981, and then 1997, the scary snake picture, Anaconda. He says, on another noteworthy 1975 release, Butler replaced the fired Haskell Wexler midway through production on Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Both shared an Oscar cinematography nomination for their work on that film. Butler also had replaced Wexler on The Conversation, after creative differences forced Wexler off the production early on. Okay, now this is, remember, this, these were all, let's see, these were all pre-Jaws, the conversation and um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. What I noticed was this shows Bill Butler's, his, his ability as a fixer, okay? Bill Butler as a director of photography, but was also a fixer, someone that could come in and correct problems. Now, there's an article over at rogerebert.com called The Consummate Collaborator, Bill Butler, 1921 to 2023. And this article was written by Walter Chaw. So Walter Chaw goes on to write in the article, I'll put this article on the show notes, but one of the things that I zeroed in on, uh, let me quote from this article. He says, I've somehow not even gotten to his towering work on Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. 1975, his second film in a row taking over for Has from Haskell Wexler, who had also been fired from the conversation. So what was it that these great filmmakers, so he's talking, uh, Walter Chaw is talking about uh, Milos Forman or the conversation was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. So what was it about these two great filmmakers were looking for to replace the indisputably brilliant but difficult Wexler, an artist? Yes, but a partner too, a problem solver who could enhance and share a vision. So he says there can be no better praise for a cinematographer than that he brought focus to any project. What a gift it is to reconsider all of these masterworks through the lens of Bill Butler's contributions to them. He was a titan and there will not soon be another like him. So what Walter Chaw is describing Bill Butler is is how he took over for 
Mr. Wexler on these two movies, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and The Conversation, because those two really well-known directors needed someone they could partner with, a problem solver who could enhance or share a vision. What you have is Mr. Butler was bringing his engineering degree where an engineer constructs and builds constructs and builds. And what he was doing was he was coming to a movie set and he was constructing and building and he was helping to build a pro he was a problem solver who could enhance and share a vision. So he could build that vision with the director. That's what, that is what Steven Spielberg zeroed in on because Butler had collaborated, and I'm going to go back to the Hollywood Reporter article. Butler had collaborated with Steven Spielberg on his early 1970s telefilm, Something Evil, featuring Sandy Dennis and Darren McGavin, and Savage, starring Martin Landau. So Butler already did two films with Spielberg that were just on television. And then he bumped into Steven Spielberg by happenstance at Universal Studios parking lot one day and said, I hear you are making a movie about a fish. So he was the one that Spielberg chose to be his director of photography to go on location and shoot Jaws. So for Jaws, Butler said his intention was for the early scenes on Amity Island to reflect the style of Andrew Wythe paintings, regional and realistic, and later contrast them with darker, violent imagery. His iconic shots included the early dawn attack for the first victim, Susan Backlinney, that opens the film, the vertigo-inspired dolly zoom that accompanies Chief Brody's, Chief Brody's shock at witnessing a shark attack from the beach, and the extreme close-ups of panicking swimmers. Just describing color palettes and lighting does a disservice because you have to realize what Bill Butler, Bill Butler did. He saved Jaws, in my opinion. He saved Jaws. And he had a great effect on Steven Spielberg. Um, let's get into that a little bit. I'm going to uh, still continue. I'm going to be paraphrasing and quoting. If Everyone can go read the full articles over at our show notes, but we're going to continue with the Hollywood Reporter article. Quote, I brought a lot of new things to the picture, such as hand-holding the camera. Butler noted, in the old days of making sea pictures, they used a giant gimbal, which weighs roughly 400 pounds and is slow and hard to set up, but does keep the camera level. I found just by experimenting that I could hand hold the camera on an ocean going boat and keep it level simply by using my knees. I told Stephen that I had this idea about shooting the picture handheld and he just fainted. He's saying that Steven Spielberg was uh, taken aback by the handheld idea. But that actually saved Jaws because Jaws became chaotic. And let's look at what Steven Spielberg, in a statement that he released, this is what Steven Spielberg says about Mr. Butler. We're going to quote Steven Spielberg. Quote, on Jaws, Bill Butler was the bedrock on that rickety rocking boat called the Orca. He was the only calm in the middle of that storm. And as we went into battle against nature and technology that wore both of us down, the audience eventually won the war. Bill's outlook on life was pragmatic, philosophical, and so very patient. And I owe him so much for his steadfast and creative contributions to the entire look of Jaws. End quote. So Spielberg actually right there says that, look what he's saying. He's saying he was the only calm in the middle of the storm. He was 
philosophical, very patient. I owe him so much for his, quote, steadfast and creative contributions to the entire look of Jaws. What exactly was happening? Keep that all in mind as we get to our final conclusions about exactly what Bill Butler meant to the production of Jaws. He was, for Spielberg, what he would have been for Francis Coppola and Milos Forman on their movies. Francis Ford Coppola on The Conversation and then Foreman on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He then went off to become that steadfast problem solver. And that what was so needed at that point in time, if you think about it, everything was going wrong. Sailboats going through the shots, mechanical shark not working, lighting, weather, the ocean. So the one thing that Mr. Spielberg needed was when the cameras were turned on, the shot was going to be well lit and everything was going to come out fine. And that's what it appears from Mr. Spielberg's statement. That's what it appears that Bill Butler brought to the production. Another thing that people don't talk about is the water box invention. Okay. I want to go into this a little bit. This is really interesting stuff here. There's an article over here on location. This is from the ASC.com, the American Society of Cinematographers.com. This is an article called On Location with Jaws. This is from June 3rd, 2020, a historical article by Mick Cribben about his visiting the set when Jaws was being filmed. Now, this is all very interesting stuff. He says, Spielberg considers Jaws to be, quote, probably the most expensive handheld movie ever made, end quote. Because of the movement on the boat caused by the waves, Bill Butler and his operator, Mike Chapman, found they could get a steadier shot by hand, holding the Panaflex camera for many situations. I asked Chapman how he liked working with the Panaflex camera. He said, quote, At first, I was worried about the viewing system, the eyepiece is up against the camera, and it took me a while to get used to that. As a handheld camera, it's rather heavy, 34 pounds, but it balanced very well. The two things that would have, uh, that in my mind, that are, are very unique, that saved Jaws, let's just put it that way, was the cinematographer's willingness to go handheld. If you look at so many shots, especially uh, so many shots are handheld, uh, that entire first barrel chase sequence, a lot of that is handheld with Quint on the pulpit and Hooper's got a tie on the first barrel. That, a lot of that is done, it's just, those shots could not have been done with just the, if there was a director of photography that was insisting on having the camera rigged to a stable platform or having the camera level at all times. These guys were willing to say, we can get this done. We got to go handheld. Spielberg was, okay, let's do it. And look what happened, right? So that was Bill Butler saying, no, we can do this. Let's, let's get this done. There's a way of doing it. If I use my legs as a shock absorber and take the pitch and roll of the boat with my legs, I can sort of keep this camera steady. One other thing that Bill Butler brought to the production was the water box. Okay. It, uh, as a second unit, now listen, this is very interesting. As a second unit photographer on John Borman's Deliverance, 1972. So, so Bill Butler was also a second unit photographer on John Borman's Deliverance in 1972. And Butler shot stunt footage and the opening title sequence as the camera skims across the river, an experience that heavily influenced his Jaws approach. So Butler recalled how Deliverance cameraman Vilmos Zygmunt filmed the famed rapid sequence in Deliverance. 
then approached Panavision. He, he then approached Panavision to construct a waterproof plastic and glass floating box that would enable him to shoot at ocean level for Jaws. Butler's quoted as saying, we were able to dip just slightly into the water to show the audience a scene from the shark's perspective, he said in 2005. Quote, the dangling legs of swimmers looked like dinner to the shark. Panavision also provided an underwater camera. It was enormous, but very stable underwater and easy to operate. He approached Panavision to construct a waterproof plastic and glass floating box, which called the water box. Now the water box also, now that was also used as with another Bill Butler invention on Jaws. And I'm going to go back to the ASC.com article. Bill Butler says one of the interesting pieces of equipment that Butler developed for this marine movie was a special raft that could be raised or lowered on its pontoons out of the water to different levels. It also had a section cut out on one side that would fit the water box that was used to protect the Panaflex camera during shots that were done right on or in the water. So I have a couple photos here that I'm going to put on our show notes. But you can see there's two things. There's the water box that Bill Butler used to, go, to get right onto the water line. And there was this platform that is very similar to the uh, technique of the Orca 2, where you have floatable barrels of air and you take the air out and the pontoon can be raised and lowered. So the camera box can be raised and lowered to their right to the right height. To me, those are some of the most terrifying and those are some of the sequences that I don't think audiences ever saw before Jaws in 1975. Right at that water line where you actually have the water line splash up where you actually can see below the water and then above the water. And there's three different aspects in Jaws that I wanted to go. Let's go into the movie really fast here. So we have the, obviously, if you go back and watch the attack on Chrissy Watkins, okay? If you go back to watch the attack on Chrissy Watkins, that is what's being used as that water box sequence because they're right at the water line. So when she's thrashing around, that water is splashing up on the camera and you actually see the the water line right there. So what you're actually seeing is it's almost a, uh, it's, it's a very terrifying aspect um, that if you were ever out in the water and you just get right down where your nose is touching the water, you can actually see that's, that, that's what the audience was doing inside the theater. That's all because of that water box and the special raft that Bill Butler developed and brought to the set of Jaws. Now, that was the first part. That, 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 this is used uh, by Spielberg throughout the movie Jaws. He's taking it. He's taking it. He's taking it. Hey, hey go. Go, 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 go. All right. The other scene is where Charlie and Den Herder are on the dock and the shark breaks the dock off. So there, the pictures that I have from the set are actually, you actually see them staging this when Charlie is trying to swim back. Right there, he's swimming right at that camera, and that water is coming right up to uh, over the lens. And then the doc turns around and comes back after Charlie. So that one sequence, and then when Charlie finally gets back to the doc, 
you have him trying to get up the wood, the slippery wood. You hear the squeaking of the shoes. That sequence right there is totally from the camera box, from the water box. And that that right there, water splashing up on the camera, you actually see one sequence where you actually, one, one take you actually see right underwater. So that is very, that was, that increased the, um, the suspense and the fright factor of that sequence. That's all Bill Butler, okay? Now, of course, Steven Spielberg made the decision to go with those shots, but those shots would not have been possible with any other director of photography who didn't approach Panavision to create this water box and then to not only take the water box, but to create the uh, platform that, that was needed to get the water box down to that water level. Very amazing stuff. One more sequence. Let's do one more sequence here. So, yeah, so the sequence with the uh, 4th of July beach sequence, there's a lot of the water box being used right at the water line. And that was really terrifying to people at the drive-ins and in the cinemas of 1995. You actually see that water line and the splash hitting the camera. That was all possible because of this water box that Bill Butler brought to the set. Um, the, the, the feet running right by, uh, trampling people, the old man getting dragged out of the water. And uh, very. Uh, the, let's just put it this way. never could have been done with traditional filmmaking techniques without somebody sitting there saying, this is what the director wants, let's make this happen, and then going to Panavision and getting this stuff invented. Amazing things, amazing. uh, uh, That is what Bill Butler brought to the production of Jaws. Of all his great work, Butler considered shooting day for night on Jaws to be among his finest achievements. Quote, I think probably that I have not seen better day-for-night shot on the ocean ever than I shot on that film, he said. Yet I've never heard anyone comment on it. Only I know that it was as good as it was. Now my own peers, other cinematographers who make these judgments, must have thought that those shots were done in the lab as a trick and therefore not worthy. The day-for-night sequences, you have uh, that was another aspect that Bill Butler brought to the production of Jaws, the the scene where Chrissy gets attacked at the beginning, the uh, the uh, the Den Herder and Charlie sequence on the dock with the holiday roast, the sequence at night where Quint is shooting the M1 Garand at the shark, and the shark's attacking the boat, uh, the shooting star in the sky. Those were all shot in daytime using uh, lights and then with special uh, filters over the camera housing, with filters over the lens, it actually darkens it down and makes it, and it's called day for night technique that um, Bill Butler was utilizing on the set of Jaws. So when you see what looks like a full moon is actually the sun over Chrissy, that is uh, that was the day for night. And that is that is a that and and what 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 uh, of all his great work, Butler considers shooting day for night on Jaws to be his finest achievement. That that's very interesting, because not many people talk about that the day for night sequence in Jaws. There's a surreal kind of twilight feel to it. Uh, I always thought that the sun coming up is the sunrise, and then you have the full moon over her, and that's what. And so you you have that. 
eerie twi- uh, the twilight almost to dawn is coming time. And it fits because that's when sharks do a lot of predations. So it fits of why the great white would attack at that time. That would never have been possible if it wasn't for a competent director of photography to pull those shots off. And Bill Butler was that director of photography needed at the right place at the right time for Steven Spielberg to get those shots in Jaws. Amazing stuff. Um, Wrapping this up now is how do we get this? So how do we get to Bill Butler inspiration? See, he fought the temptation to give up. And now I will go into explaining that. Let's just finish this article up right here. The article concludes, uh, they said, production problems on the set of Jaws became legendary. The movie began without a completed script. The giant mechanical shark malfunctioned and the planned 55-day shoot ballooned to 159 days with a wildly overblown budget that more than doubled to approach $9 million. Spielberg feared he would be fired at any moment. Quote, I said to Steve, I'll tell you something. It's been a week and we're still here. You have absolutely nothing to worry about. They must think we've got a great project going here or we would be gone because we're over further than any picture at Universal has ever gone over. That's what he was telling Steven Spielberg. Despite all the setbacks, Jaws received Oscar nominations for picture, score, editing, and sound, eventually winning all but the top award. The summer blockbuster became the highest grossing film of all time, $470 million, until surpassed by 1977's Star Wars. So how do we get to Bill Butler inspiration? Now, I'm going to bring a piece of information here that no one, that not, not many people are talking about. Okay, when we're, when we're talking about Bill Butler, I'm going to refer to Edith Blake's book on location on Martha's Vineyard, the making of the movie Jaws. Now, Edith Blake was another uh, historian of Jaws that passed away earlier this year. In her book, she references Bill Butler a few times. Now, let me, let me just read this here, and then we're going to wrap this up. Uh, she says here on page 14 of the book, she writes... Since Bill Butler, the director of photography, was from California, the East Coast Union had to send a director of photography as well, who is paid thousands just to stand by and do nothing while each man who operated the camera was duplicated by the East and West Unions. Also on page 115, she mentions, uh, Bob Riger also noted that production had been oversaddled by the unions of New York and Boston, raising the costs and confusion. In the expensive, expansive line, there was Jack Priestley, a director of photography sent out from New York. He did nothing all summer but pine to get back to work because Bill Butler was the real director of photography from California, and Jack was just a feather in the union's bed. So because of the union laws and union rules, because Bill Butler came from California, the East Coast Union for um, probably for the ASC, the American Society of Cinematographies, said there has to be East Coast representation of another director of photography on set. And that was a director of photography by the name of Jack Priestley. Now, I went to Internet Movie Database, and Jack Priestley it was a very experienced cinematographer. Uh, worked on uh, many TV movies, series. Uh, it, it's just, if you look up his, he has 39 credits as a cinematographer, 
He has 19 credits in the camera and electrical department, and he has three directorial credits. Not at the time of Jaws. This that was after Jaws. Well, like so, so, but he was experienced, uh, an experienced director of photography going into 1974 when Jaws was in production. So what Bill Butler had that was different from everyone else on set, okay, from what we learned from Edith Blake's book here is that there was an alternate director of photography on set. So whereas you have most, in, in most movies, you have a critical core amount of crew that is needed to make that movie. In Jaws, you had, whether it's the director, the producers, the screenwriter, Carl Gottlieb, you have the director, Steven Spielberg, you have the producers, uh, David Brown and Richard Zanuck. Um, then you have, the, you have the actors. Everybody, that's it. Once they start, they're the only ones there. So they, the move, they have to finish the movie. So there's this huge pressure right there, Okay. What Bill Butler was, was he was the director of photography, but there was also an alternate director of photography there. What that means was there was a temptation to give up. Whereas Spielberg could not give up. He had to keep going. Joe Ells had to keep going. Carl Gottlieb, you had to keep writing. He had to keep working away because there was no one out there to do it. But Bill, many times, Mr. Butler could have said, hey, you know what? Send this guy out to do this. I don't want to be on the Orca. Uh, this is taking too long. Have, th have that guy go out because there's a guy that's getting paid to be the director of photography and he does nothing all day long. Why, does, why don't you just have him go out and do these and I'll be over here doing this stuff? There was a lot of that temptation to just give up and say, hey, take a day off. Take two days off. Send, send Jack Priestley out with the, with the camera crew. What Bill Butler does, why is there a Bill Butler inspiration factor going on here? Is that he said, no, he's going to start it and he's going to finish it even when there's a temptation to give up. And that to me is very, very important for what we're all going through at this time. What you might be going through while you're listening to this broadcast in your own personal life is that there might be a temptation to give up. There might be a temptation to take the easy way out. But if we all just do what Bill Butler did back in the summer of 1974 and see it to the finish, look what will happen is that people 50 years later will be talking about what you've done. That is what Bill Butler inspiration is. And if we look at that, if we look at that factor, that there was, that, that there was a temptation factor that he overrode and that he said no. I'm going to make this and I'm going to get this done and I'm going to get this solo credit because he was on movie sets where the director of photography from uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and the conversation just quit, just said, you know what? I'm out of here, done. Hey, Bill, here you go, Do, take the movie. He saw that that was an option, but he actually said no. He was going to be there as that rock. And by him being there, the consistency not only made Jaws the best movie that it could be the, in the consistency of the lighting and the takes, but he was also that rock that Spielberg needed to finish that movie out. And that is very inspirational. That's what we all need to take away from the story of Bill Butler. 101 years old, a few days away of making 102. He lived a long, amazing life. He can inspire us all with his storied career, many, many different features and productions that he worked on. But if you zero in on Jaws and you zero in on exactly what he did, his contribution right there 
made Jaws into what we know the movie as it is today. Whenever you have a temptation to take that easy way out and to give up, if you're watching Jaws, I want you to watch those water box scenes of the water splashing against the camera and those extremely powerful shots, the, the dolly zoom shot on Chief Brody. We are inspired by Bill Butler on not just his career, but also that he was able to finish out this chaotic production, even when he could have taken the easy way out and just pawned it off or sections pawned sections of it off to a man that was hired that was waiting in the wings. And he chose not to. He chose to go the full distance, toe-to-toe, stand shoulder-to-shoulder with Steven Spielberg and get this production done. Very inspirational. I want to thank everyone for listening and for allowing me to um, talk about this because I will be using the example of Bill Butler going forward. I will be using the, the example that Bill Butler has set going forward in more ways than one. So if we can all say a prayer for Mr. Wilmer Butler, born in 1921, passed away the year 2023. May he rest in peace. Thank you.